Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Neil and Jordan podcast. Hope you had a great Valentine's Day. Uh, this uh, is the podcast where two comedians talk like experts on subjects they are not experts on. This podcast is very proudly sponsored by Crush Organic CBD Oil. That's Crush with a K. Go to crushorganics.com. Use the code Neil for 40% off. I've been using their platinum oil for months now. It has done wonders for my sleep. It has eased. It has uh, definitely uh, palliated some of my anxiety and tiredness and all the negative things associated with being a millennial or Gen Z. And uh, I can't recommend them enough. So go to crushorganics.com, use the code NEIL for 40% off. And uh, if you haven't used it before, start off with two to three drops. Wait a couple of hours, see how you go. We have shows on sale. Jordan's doing a tour all over the country. Go to his website to check out where he's performing next. I've got regular shows in Sydney, Melbourne, and Newcastle. And we have uh, a wide range of great stand-up comedians that you probably haven't heard of, but they deserve to be heard. And we will feature them. We'll also do some improv. So come see us uh, the first Sunday of every month in Melbourne. And I think it's the third Sunday of every month in Newcastle. And soon some more cities added. All right. Oh, and uh, if you'd like to ask us a question, send in a shout out or a topic, go to neilcolehatka.com slash podcasts. And all that money goes to charity. We raised over five grand for charity last year. No, so, good on you, Neil. Thank you very much. It was, it was the listeners, I didn't. I added a little bit, but uh, it was all you guys. So good on you guys for doing that. Yeah, hope it was worth your while with our answers. I hope so too. I'm sure it was. We're pretty good. I think. Sure. I. Uh, you- <laughs> We're all right. We do the job. I know we we're going to get done. hit in here, but yeah, uh, I, yeah. You you said it. I'll cheer you on on the sidelines on that one. It's just every time I ever say anything like that, I just know that there's going to be a bunch of people going like, oh, "You said you're good. You actually suck." It's like, okay. I think you read too much uh, of the criticism of you. I can't online. not. There's too much of it. Did you see the Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan podcast? No. Oh, I saw it. Of course I did. And uh, <laughs> very fair assessment of what Jordan was wearing. He looked like a Bond villain or a, a Batman villain. He was in a tux with a bow tie. Legend. And he, he was his usual stoic, serious self. And he'd like randomly look Joe in the eye when he was being very serious. And then, and you know, and then he'd like go on about whatever he was he was talking about and suddenly talk. Very seriously. It's not that simple. It's death. It's death. Everything comes back to like death and chaos. I was actually trying to seek out uh, valid criticism of that podcast because there's a lot that was going to be said about it inevitably. And every video, the criticism, it started with some sort of snarky comment about like bros and incels everywhere were celebrating because yeah. and it's just i can't take this criticism seriously when you're just gonna they're not gonna have a serious with these one. personal attacks about people who really look up to these guys and you know i just want to hear a methodical breakdown of where he got things wrong because it was a four and a half hour podcast there were also things that i definitely raised eyebrows over but uh alex made a great point why do women hate a man who is telling men, get your act together and commit to one woman. Why do women hate that? 
That's what he's saying. I don't. It, look, and women are like, more you sexist. Like, what do you want, man? This is a guy who is influencing men to get their act together, get a job, stop smoking weed, stop watching porn, to take responsibility and commit to one woman. Isn't that a good thing for you as a class? But the way he says it, it's not. It, look, let's be pragmatic about this. It's, it's not necessarily about what how it makes you feel about the way someone says something. What is the uh, consequence of those views being expressed? And the consequence is a lot of men are committing to one woman, <laughs> getting married, getting married, getting their act together, choosing not to cheat, not to do drugs. Why? Like that. <laughs> He's your savior. Yeah. If anything, women should love him more than men. That's actually really true. Look, I don't think that it is women that hate him. It is a specific subsect of women and beta that hate him. And it is because in the beta's case, they know that they just can't live up to his standards. And I think that the woman that doesn't like him is a piece of shit. They're just- Trashy pieces of crap And I think it's the same thing with the guy as well He's just a trashy piece of crap But he's a weak trashy piece of crap And I think that both of them And you know what I think both of it always comes down to Every time I ever see anyone criticising Jordan Peterson All I see is some 10 year old going Fuck off dad I want my fucking Playstation back That's all I see Because it's just He is the father figure of the internet Yeah and every time I always just see some douchebag in coloured sunglasses sitting there with a smug facial expression on and you think, wow, I'm sure you were just a treat to raise as a kid. Well, it's just very interesting <laughs> when the criticism towards people who like him is always, you know, they're incels and they can't get laid. And they're, well, he's, he- that, he's saying you should change that and not be resentful. Yeah. So even if he does appeal to incels, someone's got to appeal to them. Someone should try and change... Well, they like, which is actually, I want to talk about that on this part. Like, yeah, my favorite topic. Incels. Incels. But uh, revisiting. I like other, it. I've done a specific one on that on, on this podcast for about two years. And oh, I think really? that's still the most viewed one on YouTube. Always. You know when you look up Australian incel on YouTube, five of the videos on the front page are me. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah. This was, your, uh, this was your deep dive. You've been thinking about this a lot. Oh, I mean, but well, it's been just a. It's actually just it's incels, because the internet but, has but been th- was dating. the internet was Modern. thinking about it a lot. Yeah, specifically in cells, though, they were specifically thinking about loser men that can't get laid. Yes, that modern was- dating uh, is something I'm, I'm obsessed about. But and the dynamic, the sort of cultural dynamics that come with that. Uh, but the the best criticism I've seen of Jordan Peterson, the best was uh, Philosophy Tube, did a sort of twenty plus minute breakdown. He or she, no, sorry, she, yeah, I think they're a trans woman. Yeah, I don't, fuck. I, look, they did a very good uh, sort of methodical, fair-minded breakdown of where he missteps on certain things, and they made a point at the start to say, uh, look, I'm not going to attack the fans. I know he's changed a lot of people's lives. This is where I believe he gets the philosophy wrong or this is where he sort of waffles on and – you know, when he does talk about climate change, for example, there's a lot of abstractions. Now, it goes over my head intellectually because I don't know when he speaks in these elaborate abstractions, 
is this a man who is just so beyond me intellectually that I just can't comprehend what he's saying? Or the, the criticism is that yeah, it's just sophistry. He's being unnecessarily esoteric when he could just get to the point and be far more specific. I know Carl Kalinske has that uh, criticism of him when he talks about God and he sort of has this very broad idea. When, you, when he's asked, do you believe in God? It's, for most people, that's a yes or no answer where he says, you know, it, well, it depends what you mean by God. And that's fair. I think he's being honest. His interpretation of God, because if you... I'm actually reading Maps of Meaning. Man, that is his magnum opus. That one is way better than those. I didn't like 12 Rules of Life or the other one. But Wait, Maps of Meaning is good? Yes. Yes. That's his. He so it's really not, breaks everything down there. That's his whole it, philosophy. But it's not absurd. Uh, not absurd. Is it like abstract? Is it really abstract? It's abstract. But I think when he commentates on uh, culture and morality, I think you need it, – it's good to be abstract because you want to deal with the complexities – of uh, human behavior, why we behave, archetypes, stories and myths. And he had, a, and I think there was a code where it was, sorry, a, a sort of quote that I remember, I think even bookmarking, which was something like, I can't remember, I'm not going to be able to say this exactly, but um, good behavior is encoded in speech. Good speech is then encoded into myths, myths into stories, stories into religion. And that's also embodied by God. Look, it's just a much more sort of complex interpretation of uh, stories and particularly religious stories. And, you know, I think the abstractions there are, are, are just really meaningful and deep. However, when he goes on abstractions about climate change, it's, it's don't, that's different to culture and morality. Mm. And I don't think him sort of going on for 30 minutes and sort of making these uh, remarks about, you know, relating it to certain parables is is really doing the issue justice there. I think then it does, it can come across as like, okay, what do you do? This is science here. You need to just be direct about what you're saying. Now, it's not just science because there's a, there's so many related ideas as we discussed i think two podcasts ago where you've got philosophy related to climate change economics related to it personal identity related to it psychology all these things so he's right to say hey it is more complicated but on the issue of the science itself it, it shouldn't it, it, it but again i he's so far you know this is such an intelligent man where i don't know if i'm just these intellectual concepts are completely going over my head or I'm falling for the grift. <laughs> Who the fuck knows? But Well, I really don't like that criticism of him that people say. Um, he's a grifter. Well, no, I just I hate the phrase grifter because it's a really annoying thing to say. Yeah, exactly. But this is, no, they say. In fact, actually, I think it was Milo Yiannopoulos that said this criticism the best, which was. As a journalist, you kind of get where people are going because there's only so many cookie-cut beliefs in the world. Uh And when it comes to Jordan Peterson, like he's just like, I've listened to, you know, like everyone else, dozens and dozens of hours of lectures with that man and I still can't tell you what his fucking worldview is. And it's because he, the the way that he speaks- uh, as you're saying, like it just keeps just dragging out and like takes a long time to get to like a very basic point and we'll go through 
you know, just just these these very elaborately constructed sentences to get there. And it's always this thing at the end of, did you mean this or did you mean this? And you can interpret it either way. But I argue that that is because- He's thought about it extremely deeply. He's thought about it extremely deeply. I also think it's because most people- aren't as creative as him. I truly do think that he is highly creative. And yeah. so, that's what you're kind of watching when you're looking at him, right? He's sort of- He's an artist. He's sort of an artist. That's why he's interesting to listen to because he's got a different perspective on things. And so what if everything he says isn't concrete? Like, why does that matter? Like, everyone else watches- As we were just saying before, you watch these debates for entertainment purposes- and if that just annoys you or whatever, then, yeah, you can tune out. But it's just amazing to me the level of criticism this man receives. Yeah. And as you're saying, like, it's it's always just – I suppose because he's just definitely well planted into the culture war. But I really feel like 99% of his criticism is purely cultural. It's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. like you can look at someone and think that person's going to hate Jordan Peterson. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Don't you reckon? Yeah. And, and that's, that's it. It's, it's all also, that criticism, which is just, uh, hey, oh, you're all the incels that listen to him. That is projection at its finest. And it's always rooted in, like, even though they're talking about, yes, yeah, for sure, because they always are fucking. Like, every person that is always saying the incels, you look at them and you think, are you getting laid? Yeah, exactly. You're not, are like, you? All right, like, if I, okay, whatever. Even if the people who do like him are incels, that's not, you're not really going after his ideas there. No. And then what are you trying to say? You're saying incels are subhuman to the point where they're not allowed to have someone that they like. Well, the, I guess the the best version of that argument is he's just, I guess, the, the demagogue of incels where he's just sort of like he's, uh, you know, indulging their resentment and uh, sort of justifying their resentment by blaming progressive culture and he's ultimately doing it for money and grifting. And, I mean... No, I mean, look, the, the what is he's a very good actor then because he gets so passionate and often tearful when he speaks and that clearly is a man who firmly believes what he's saying or he's an amazing actor. Either or, but I think that the message of it, and obviously I'm not him, so I can't speak well for him, but what I get from it all the time is, yeah, okay, he's getting to, and people are always saying, these are the two basic criticisms. He's not talking about anything concrete, or those same people will say, oh, everything he says is obvious. Which one is it? Which one fucking is it then? Which one yeah. do you actually hate? You just hate him. But let's just move it back from that. Good. I'm glad that he's saying these obvious things. You need to be reminded of obvious things constantly. And the the, the general- thing that I get from all of his uh, climate change stuff, which who cares, really? Like the namby-pamby stuff that he's talking about with climate change, whatever. There's a million other people that you should be more angry at than Jordan Peterson for his views on climate change. At the core of it, he is essentially saying, and we were talking about this a few podcasts before, but I just need to reiterate this. It's He's saying, it's complicated, but he's also saying, dude, you are not going to change anything about fucking climate change. You specifically, okay, you can do your general things of voting for a different party. You can do your, you can you can put solar panels on and things like this, but this is an international problem that is getting solved by people that are far more capable than you. 
you focus on something more local about your local environment, that is actually the best thing that you can do about climate change. That is the best thing that you could do. He's always just constantly saying, focus on your locus of control. I think that really, when I hear him getting mad about climate change, it's actually something that I've gotten more mad about the older I get. And I can't say that I'm perfect on this. I've definitely- been in that same realm of just like, oh, yeah, we've got, we got to, you know, convince the UN to do things and, you know, that kind of shit. But at the core, he's just being like, dude, you give a shit about this. Okay, go organize a community garden. Get competent enough to make sure that that community garden has shifts so the lettuce doesn't die and is constantly getting watered and fertilized. And then sure. you can move on to something else from there. Oh, that point I totally agree with. And I, I, I really admire the way he articulates that. It's sick. I love that. When he talks about the science of it in abstract ways, it's – although he he was on that – he worked for the UN and he read far more books on it than I have. So I maybe I am uh, – okay, so he was making the points that, hey, the, I think the best thing we can do is try and alleviate global poverty and that is maybe the best thing we can do for the environment because – there are studies that show as people move up the uh, uh, social, sorry, economic mobility ladder, they care more about the environment. They're not just focused on themselves and when their next meal is coming. Having said that, there's also a huge need for collective action on an issue as complex as this. And you can move a lot of people up to the middle and even upper middle class. Australia is the perfect example. There's plenty of people who are in the middle and upper middle class who, yeah, okay, on average, they probably care about the environment more. There's plenty who also don't. Uh, yeah, and, and we're also the biggest polluters per capita. Well, maybe yeah, someone else has taken that title, probably. but we're like very high up. Yeah, I mean, that's the, li- the, the lifestyle and a lot of people having large houses that in other countries would be living in tiny little shacks. Yeah. <laughs> this is the luck, this is the lucky country, man. Really? Modi is. said it the best. He came here in 2014, I think, and he's like, this is the one country where the plumber can live next door to the, you know, the the politician. Mm. Yeah, that does not happen Doesn't in happen other countries. Else. No, not even New Zealand. No. You, if you're working class, this is, there's a much greater class divide. If anything, you almost have inherent status here by being working Blue class because you're not a wanker. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, in other, that, that is the, uh, that's an aberration. That's not the norm in every other country. No. And uh, this is just a fascinating culture in Australia. It's almost like a sort of very blue collar, less intellectual version of Christian morality because Christian morality, it's all about, you know, uh, whatever what's that quote a rich man it's easier for something some some something to happen than for a rich man to get into heaven mm. from what i've heard in uh, parts of ireland that are very notably catholic they they just actually denigrate successful people and they and they have a sort of Boss. tall poppy syndrome based on a christian morality whereas that's australia sick. sort of adapted that but taken the intellectual side out of it and been rather yeah. than saying like well it's easier for a what is it the camel to what's the fucking get into quote? the needle of an eye of a needle then for a rich man to get into heaven oh you sound like a wanker i just reckon rich people are cunts like that's just australia's just been the convict version of that <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love the attitude of this country. I like it. Uh, look, the tall poppy syndrome, I got two. There's, there's a good and bad of it. Like, when it gets to the extreme level, it's just it does really uh, circumscribe the potential for not just success but for uh, innovation and uh, 
intelligence to flourish and for just sort of really good things to come about. But at the same time, it mollifies arrogance and narcissism and ego, which if you go to America, they're all about this is the land of the opportunity, sorry, land of opportunity where you can make it and there's a lot of egotistical people there. Whereas you come to Australia, sure, there's probably less egomaniacs, but uh, I wonder if, you know, there's a lot of people who didn't live up to their full potential. You know, it's good and bad to every cultural phenomenon. For the average person, this country is great, but uh, if you're sort of a very gifted and talented person, you maybe America's better. I don't know. But then again, uh, then again, I don't don't know. Like the, okay, the Djokovic <laughs> thing. That I, I'm a big Djokovic fan, and everyone here hates. It. They're like, oh, he's arrogant. He's just confident. He's not arrogant. People think he's arrogant because he has a Serbian accent and he, you know, looks people in the eye. <laughs> like, no, he's just confident, bro. Like, where, where is he saying, I am the number one, I am the best? He's always like, yes, I played good tennis today and I thought that it was a very good match. Like, he's not. Really? Because I've never even well, watched it. I don't know arrogant. what he looks like. I don't think he's arrogant. Right. Uh, and, uh, okay, so he didn't have his vaccine passport or whatever the fuck. And then, you know, the typical criticism is like, you know, he's no better than me. Oh, you know, he has to obey the same rules as I do. It's like, okay, he's objectively better than you, okay? He's the, one of the best tennis players, maybe the best tennis player to have ever played the game. Just, you, I think we could have given him an exception. But I'm in a very small minority. Everyone on social uh, media. Yeah, I like, really don't understand how this got so passionate. Goodbye, cunt. <laughs> Just let the guy play. Like, what's it going to I understand the value of the rules and if you sort of ease them for him and then there are people who maybe are, have family members that they haven't been able but to But the passion. Oh my God, like just let the guy. <laughs> and then Nadal, now it's changed the course of tennis history. Where? Because Nadal, Federer and Djokovic were all on 20 Grand Slams each. All of them should have pretty much retired. Well, maybe not Djokovic because he's 34, but in any other era, Nadal and Federer would have definitely retired. The only reason they haven't is because they're chasing the elusive greatest uh, Grand Slam winner of all time. I wouldn't retire either if I were them. And... Uh, Djokovic was the favourite to win the Australian Open. He probably would have, considering Nadal beat Medvedev in five sets and just sort of scraped that victory through. I mean, you've changed whoever made that decision has changed the course of tennis history potentially. You know what though? I, I, I look. I think it feels like fate that that should have happened then. Uh, I thought uh, I don't know, but I'm definitely in a minority. It was something like eighty percent of Australians were. Oh like, yeah. yeah, fucking dickhead. But uh, yeah, there, there was serious really, fervor about it. Let the guy play, man. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, you are right. And Australia is definitely a society that values fairness. That's bred into our bones. Yes, I think America is definitely bred into their bones to value unfairness, aren't they? No, I don't know about that. I think there's different conceptions of fairness. So fairness can be seen as everyone getting an equal slice of the pie or this is very rudimentary, simplistic ideas about it, but, you, you know, everyone getting an equal slice of the pie. That's one version of fairness. Everyone getting a slice of the pie uh, commensurate to the effort and value they've uh, put in and added to the society. That's another idea. That's the American idea of fairness. 
The Australian idea fan is probably a mixture of the two, really. Yeah, yeah, but like, okay, just just in terms of the the rudimentary idea that you have, and obviously there's all individuals there and they all have their own ideas, but the idea is Australia celebrates the fair go. Right. In America, there's kind of seems to be this attitude of, okay, in Australia, we worship the underdog. If we see like a homeless person, it's not necessarily we're going to give him money or anything, but you're just like, fuck, that guy's having a rough one, you know? Whereas in America, it's kind of just like, get a jab, you bum. Hey, really? you want a quarter? How about you go get a jab? There's that kind of that's attitude. A caricature. I don't think Americans actually but like that's that. That's what I'm saying. The caricature of Australia is that. The caricature of America is that. I think the caricature that Americans would maybe think of Australia, although the other, the rest of the world are like, they, they, you know, yobbos. Because, again, we like I said uh, on that Asian podcast, um, any immigrant basically just thinks all Australians are bogans. Like, what, Australians, there's, there's, they understand there's like a subset that are the bogans, but every other immigrant is like, oh, they drink so much and hardly work. That's <laughs> Wait, what's the stereotype of America then? Oh, it, like... If I, I guess the sort of negative stereotype of it would be just a cocky and uh, money obsessed, money obsessed and fat. <laughs> yeah, fat, money obsessed, stupid. Yeah, stupid, arrogant. As well. Yeah, yeah, fat. Fuck, such a negative stereotype. That's yeah. way better. It's so much more endearing. Just dumb bogans. Yeah, they yeah. like beer and sport, and they're dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and there's they're not fat, they have a gut. There's trade-offs to every society. That, you know, there's good and bad to every society. So I suppose with America, you kind of really can harness the talents of the top 0.1% of people who are just the most gifted and intellectually capable. And that's why there's a brain drain even still to this day. All the, the best people at universities will tend to go to end up in America. I know in India, you know, from India that like the still the best talent ends up in America. Uh, but it's it's obviously also a very uh, the the gap between rich and poor is quite expansive. I'll tell you what though, that is it's also not a comfortable life for the average person. But in no. Australia it's a very comfortable life. It's compared comparatively, comparatively it's to the rest a of the world. Much more comfortable Easily. life to, for the average person. Yeah. Uh, but there's probably maybe, you know, because of the culture, but maybe also because of the system, it's not – it's a tough one. You don't really know whether this is true or not. It's hard to compare because our population is so much smaller. But, you know, a lot of rare, very gifted and talented people also end up in America who might be Aussies. And uh, But that's the thing. It definitely – look – when you're talking about talented and gifted to going to America, uh, arguably the arts, finance sector, absolutely. But in terms of things like science and academia, they're going to Europe and China. Oh, okay. So, it really just depends really? on what you value. Yeah. All of- all. I'm sure some would go to America, right? Some would go to America and they do go to America and I do know scientists that go to America, but I know more scientists that go to China and I know more scientists that go to France. Well, anyway, my point still stands. They're leaving Australia. They're leaving Australia, but it's just interesting that the the what, what brains they're trying to harvest, you know? Mm, right. That's what's interesting. And it just really plays more into the- uh, a stereotype that America's fucked. 
you know? Like, who are they trying to attract? People that are, you know, uh, particularly talented at making supercomputers that can predict day trading better than someone else's supercomputer. That's what they're interested in. Yeah, okay. Sure, sure. I mean, that's very cynical. Like, yeah, okay, there's a huge profit incentive for a lot of those top science graduates, but don't you think there's also- I don't know, someone like Elon Musk. I don't know, people have very mixed views yeah. about him, but that's someone who clearly went to America. His talents were harnessed and, and sort of propagated the most in that particular country. He has benefited that country the most. And there's a reason he didn't stay in South Africa. Well, I mean, Jesus, fuck. Who Dude, would? Good luck, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right now. <laughs> quite a mess from what I've heard. <laughs> Yeah, you'd move anywhere that you could otherwise. And yes, he is into Silicon Valley. That's definitely true. Silicon Valley is uh, Silicon Valley is an offshoot, though, of the fact that the US's military complex is just so much better funded than anyone else's. And obviously, that bleeds over to microchips. Right. Yeah, of course, this is much more complicated than just the culture of tall poppy syndrome versus... Uh, enterprise, but but it is just interesting. It's interesting that like, yeah, like, culture makes a difference. Yeah, it, it fucking does. It does. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what did I want to talk about? Yeah, 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 yeah. So two years ago, I did that Intel podcast? Oh yeah, and been talking about it a lot on TechSell. I don't want to specifically just talk about incels, but uh, now this is no longer a topic of conversation that is just restricted to uh, Manosphere blogs. A lot of, sure, mainstream sources aren't necessarily talking about it, but uh, a lot of podcasts that I admire, and this could be an algorithm particularly targeting me, who the hell knows, but podcasters who are not incels or neckbeards by any means, at least they don't seem like it, are talking about the the very unequal market. They often use the analogy of a market of today's dating environment and how there's just this continued growth of men who are checking out from dating which is con- constantly being rejected or having absolutely no success with online dating and the average woman is sort of going for this smaller proportion of men who are at the top of various status hierarchy, there's, there's various measures you can employ and people get so upset when you even just talk about this. And I'm not personally attacking anyone. Uh, yet I think the incel thing is far more nuanced where, you know, yes, there are a lot of men who just sort of don't even try or don't even attempt to do things and use modern culture as an excuse. But at the same time, how much can you constantly tell some people, keep bettering yourself, keep self-improving? When f- for years they've been they've been trying that they've been doing what they can and maybe they just certain they got a, a bad luck in the genetic lottery and maybe they're not particularly intelligent maybe they're not particularly good looking now again that's not an excuse you can still but they may be not particularly socially intelligent as well so they can't just pick up on something like charisma or you know certain social cues and um anyway. There are certain, you could argue, there are certain like systemic issues at play now where very nuanced conversation because as soon as you sort of admit to something like that, immediately a lot of people, oh, it's an excuse to just not even try, not even bother, just become a simp and then 
you know, pay for someone's OnlyFans. The, but I just want to revisit it again with you because it's very interesting talking to you about this. You've now been in a long-term relationship for a very long time. I've now been in a long-term relationship for close to a year. But the trends and, and what I'm seeing anecdotally among my friend group, man, a lot of men are just like, fuck this. I don't even want to try anymore. And then a lot of women are like, where are, you know, why am I getting fucked over all the time? Where are these good, where are the good men? The classic complaint. Uh, and all the sort of the studies and the analyses of it, because it's very interesting. There's a lot of like complex uh, graphs and things that have been made about this. You had a really good term, I think, on that podcast two years ago, which was like, it's basically a sex oligarchy. There's just this very small slither of men that are getting a lot of success, especially in the realm of online dating. And the average man is is missing out. And now uh, people are, are jaded. They're really, they're depressed. They're, they're, they have a lot of animosity towards the opposite gender. They're... Uh, they're resentful. They're not giving their best selves to their partner. They've got their walls up. They're guarded. And that just makes it worse for the other person. People are damaged emotionally, sometimes even physically. And a lot of people are just opting to stay single. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Uh, but one, what are the implications for this as a society, as a country? And and two, uh what the hell can we do about it if we do see it as a problem? I put one of those surveys up on my Instagram a couple of weeks ago. Hey, fertility rates are falling all across the developed world. Um, in Australia, I think for, for an OECD nation, they're still relatively high, but you know they're not replacement level. The birth rate is not replacement level in Australia. Our population is still growing because of migration. Uh, but you know, is this going to be a problem down the line? And as this sort of sex technology continues to advance at exponential rates already they 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 sell sex robots all over the place it's just a matter of time before they're mass marketed and accessible to the average 20 year old guy and real enough exactly getting close actually what the hell's gonna what's something's got to give man like because that both genders now there's almost this sort of gender war this class warfare when you know there's a lot of talk about double standards from both genders so women will say all right men want this 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 in a in a woman but then they get insecure when this 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 happens men will often complain about hey women are saying they want this yet all our experiences say the opposite to that uh certain traits are uh prioritized in as the dating market becomes more casual. I mean, did you actually read Hormonal? Because I told you. No, I've, I've downloaded the audio book. Okay. I've just got to finish my other sure. autism hole. But no, I'm looking a, forward to that. I actually do think about it a lot. It's a great, uh, oh, it's such a great book. And yeah, I mean, uh, going on TikTok, it's, it's obviously not real life, not real world, but it's a very sort of, it's just less intelligent but more snarky and sort of visual memeified twitter for gen z that's how it feels it's just this war on on tiktok a lot of relationship stuff a lot of this 
and I can't help but feel, what is this? Is this China trying to, it, it's probably good, it's working. They're, they're pitting the genders against each other. This is not even a race war anymore. This is men versus women now. Like, But hasn't it always been on the net? Yeah, but this seems very intense now. This is Because TikTok's fucked it. That's why. It's really. It's the next, gen- TikTok's the, the evilest medium it's easily. It's extreme. No one's listening to each other. You can't. There's, You're there's, giving the fucking minute. Of course. I mean, like, you can't. The complaint a lot of women will have is, like, men have an ego and are not willing to sit down and just listen. And, you know, there's a certain uniqueness that comes with being a female that men will never fully comprehend the emotional reality of that. That's fair enough. But this isn't my opinion. It's true that, like, your emotional reality is not necessarily the objective reality and an objective reality or something closer to that is is better coordinated and understood through things that we you know reason and and like studies and these sorts of things but then also then when men say hey this is our experience or like this is what it's like to be a man there are a lot of women who will just shut down and and there's this narrative that's been sold to especially gen z women where basically any man talking about women is you know that's a form of power that he's trying to wield over her they'll just it's like the nicole flint like that's just gen z is just like carbon copies of nicole flint that's how it that's how it feels like to me again this could be the algorithm this could be me falling down an echo chamber i don't know but uh that when you can't like we decide you just can't it's not about arguing but nothing you say to someone who is so embedded in that self-serving narrative will ever get through no nothing you can possibly say it's not there's not even like just a it's slightly ajar door there for someone to actually Im- consider that maybe something they think about could be wrong or flawed or could be thought about in a different way. It's just purely seeing everything through the lens of their subjective reality, which is like man on the internet criticizing me, sexism, power, unfairness. Mm. That's just you can just not Form get through. Form of rape. Not, yeah. We'll get. Well, yeah. Okay. I don't know about that, but like that you could not get through to someone like that. And now there's this whole um, community of men that are just like that on the other side of the spectrum. And there are some podcasts out there now that, don't get me wrong, hilarious, entertaining, like that's what, fresh and fit, hilarious, very entertaining. But it's, you know, it's McDonald's for relationship podcasts, right? It's just two guys saying what a lot of young guys probably want to hear to feel vindicated about their experiences they've had with, with women and yeah uh monogamy i've realized is actually it's not natural which everyone no one's not many people are disputing that but you should i think for the for the good of the society we probably should do it i do think if like a small percentage of people experiment with open relationships but in a in a really authentic and and non-egotistical way part of much harder said than done i think that's probably good because you want to try and experiment with the unknown you want to try and navigate that and see if there is something better to be discovered there but for the majority of society people are just better off if they just pair up and aren't looking outwards to think what's better out there hey i've suddenly got this ick after three years even though my boyfriend's been great Oh, hey, like I'm no longer sexually satisfied with my girlfriend. Let's just give it up. Because that's a very sort of new version of um, 
paired on it. It was Esther Perel who said this well. It was like monogamy used to be one person for life. Um, monogamy is now one person right now. Mm. And, mm, uh, mm. you know, there's just, who was it? Mary Harrington, I think. She's, I think she's a, she's, like, she's a feminist and she's talking about how the next movement for women will have to be no longer about cultural freedom and liberation. How much more liberation needs to occur because there's now a lot of option paralysis and sort of existential dread from all the freedom people have when historically you didn't have to think about it. There wasn't this constant anxiety by the time you hit your mid Am I missing out? Up to, yeah, your mid-30s, like, oh, my mid- oh, what, am I should- what should I do? You know, is this the right person for me? Am I settling? Are they good enough? No, you just paired off with someone because it was what you did, usually someone from your community, and it wasn't necessarily about love. It was building a life together based on shared values, and it was also, you know, for the country. It was a sort of mo- – marriage wasn't this sort of self-serving spiritual uh, adventure. It was a – it was almost a civic duty. It was a civic and moral duty. And yeah, Which there was it a still lot of, should be seen as. Well, whether it should be seen as. We've definitely uh, because- lost out some of the advantages of that because we only ever had – our eyes on the disadvantages, which is it's restrictive, which it is. It's very restrictive. You don't have a lot of choice. There were sort of strict gender roles associated with that. But now we're at a point where it's, okay, how much more liberation and freedom can we possibly have? And how much more dread and anxiety and depression caused by today's dating market do we need to endure before we start to actually seriously question some of the progressive ideas that we're promulgating as just the right way to think about relationships and and sex and and marriage. Especially because it just makes you so self-absorbed. That's the other thing that I really like being about in a monogamous relationship is that it it just cuts all of that out. That part of your life is handled, as you're saying, you don't have to think about it anymore. Mm, You have all this brain power that you can move into something else that if you don't, you're kind of just sitting there trying to satiate carnal desires for the rest of your life. And don't get me wrong, one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't get like a, a good go at that. I had, you know, not enough time in that frame before I got into a long-term relationship, I don't think. And I think that those people that, you know, get their four or five years out of that is fine. But then after that, I really think that, you know, at some point- and I do think that it is about your mid-20s. It starts to become a sign of immaturity if you're just constantly playing the field. At some point, you should get to something of, all right, I should settle down. And it isn't even because of the relationship dynamics of it. It is for the rest of your life. It's for every other area of your life. Mm. There's a bunch of things that you need to do as a human being. And a lot of those get ticked off as soon as you put that in. And one of the big things that Jordan Peterson's always talking about is- being in a monogamous relationship weds you to responsibility. It's sort of the same thing as pets. I think that a really good indicator is getting a cat or a dog. Can you look after the cat or a dog correctly? Because it's a one-to-one relationship. Anyone that I've ever seen that is a shit dog owner is a shit parent. I've never seen it the other way around. They're always fucking terrible. And it's because, you know, the, the, it's that same thing with the relationships, I suppose. It's just like it, it ties you down to something. It, it makes you a more serious person. Mm. That's the other thing you're saying is that it's like it's more of a- But mm. I, was, I don't think there's a, a necessarily a shortage of people who yearn to be in monogamous, healthy 
fulfilling relationships. But a lot of this, again, anecdotal, but the, the statistics do back this up to an extent. People aren't being satisfied with what's being offered to them on the current dating market, both men and women. A yes. lot of people are saying, this was, you know, this was not good enough or this other person didn't fulfill what I was looking for. And, well, that podcast I was just listening to before you came in, that was actually a friend of mine sent that to me and that was two religious women from America who were talking about how uh, buying uh, flooding the market with, again, this market analogy, I know people get mad at it because it's sort of dehumanizing it, but it's the the, the best way to think about it. It is the really way to think about what that. what it is. And yeah. don't, you know, you, you, you're taking things too seriously. You, you know, it's childish Factual to have this economic. like- Yeah, like fairy tale version about like, well, no, I'm looking for this special. It's human to me. It's like, all right, yes, but like the aggregate- result of everyone looking for their special someone is essentially a market. So, okay, anyway. But what's happened here is uh, it's a very – it's for, for some men, not all, but it's far easier to get laid than it would have been without having to pay for it. Than in history. Ago. Yeah, throughout when there was a more, uh, I suppose, religion and – cultural codes associated around things like that. It's also just a product of a lot of people moving to big cities and having some a lot more free time. Anonymity. Yeah, and, and you know, apps that uh, give off the illusion that it's very accessible. And, yeah, to be honest, the right needs to, again, we, I know we don't like that left and right, but in this cultural context, needs to acknowledge that sort of unfettered, capitalism here actually has contributed to this because people aren't uh, sort of taking into account, uh, you know, parables or stories or just advice that is maybe not satiating their immediate urge to feel fulfilled and live out this fairy tale, but instead what's being marketed to people, rom-coms, porn for men, Disney fairy tales, all these things that are just for profit but are giving people a completely selfish expectations for what love, sex, and relationships are all about. That they're this happy ending and, you know, you get to find your prince or whatever the fuck. Like, and then for porn, sure. I mean, I look, I always go speak about how much I sort of dislike it. I Look, I do watch it. It's just it's so fucking good. But, um, <laughs> you know. What's it doing? Because I can still say, like, yeah, look, I don't want to, but, like, man, it's too good. But that just shows once the robots come about, well, we're fucked. But, uh, and a lot of people share this view that I'm having here, but then they're oh, not yeah. willing to put it into practice. No. And well, that's the thing, I did it for a long time either. I was saying all this, but then I was, you know, I was... Having like, I had, there was a time there where I had like, yeah, what, like two or three casual partners. It was so much fun. I felt like a boss. Really what I was searching for is not just to get laid. I think what a lot of men are also searching for is not just to get laid. It's to be desirable to multiple women. I think that's a very powerful urge that men want to satisfy. It's not just about getting laid. You can go to the brothel, get laid as much as you want. No, it's ultimate validation. Every man wants to be kind of a James Bond. That's why, again, James Bond was sort of this fairy tale marketed to older men about this, you know, swashbuckling, forty-five-year-old hero who could go around and sleep with whichever twenty-six-year-old 26 26 year he wanted. Yeah. It's like, all right, yeah, look, it's not real, bro. 
as entertaining as it was. Uh, but anyway, so these these women on this podcast were talking about how. And and by the way, Chris Williamson on Modern Will, oh, Wisdom is is fantastic on this. He's done a few recent podcasts uh, about this specific issue. And again, this is what sort of vindicated me in, in being able to talk about this without no you know yeah there's always gonna be some people's like just an incels who talk about this but like now it's becoming more mainstream there's a serious problem here um so yes basically men that like the price they had to incur to get sex is now far less and as a result, they're not necessarily bettering themselves. The big reason men would better themselves and sort of work towards something historically was ultimately not for just for power. And yes, status was maybe part of it, but it was to find, to be able to attract a mate and to provide for their children. And the narrative is, is that all oh, men had all this power and, you know, women didn't have access to that, which, okay, it's fair. Women should definitely have access to that, but there was a huge responsibility that came with that as well. And there was this very complex sort of cultural ecosystem that, you know, you've taken like all these Jenga pieces out because they were uncomfortable and they were restrictive and the whole tower is now collapsing because now people, I think, are yearning for a bit of that sort of responsibility, a roadmap, you know, just clear uh, a, a clear pathway to have those basic physiological needs met, which is sort of, yeah, just security, intimacy, and um, consistency. Not for everyone. I know some people out there just don't actually, despite culture or whatever, really just want to be individuals and live their own life and do what they want. But I do wonder if a lot of that is just, you know, we're so easily molded by culture. I mean, just two years ago, I was like, oh, no, nah, yeah, I think open relationships are the way to go. And now I've switched immediately on that, partly due to some personal experiences, but also because I think uh, there are certain psychological truths that I then discovered about myself. But Jordan's also right in saying the cost to having extra partners, what is what is that? You know, what are you then sacrificing? You're valuing that and what are you then putting on a rung below that? And there are now things because in my you always life have that to. are just, yes, there are now things in my life that are just far more important to me. And don't get me wrong, art come sometimes come out after a show and fuck, my girlfriend's probably going to hate me saying this, but there's girls that are like openly flirting with DTF. me. DTF. They're, <laughs> I'm like, oh, God damn. But there are just yeah, things. The bane in- of a famous man's, sure, like it, it really is. But- it's fucked. But no, no, but it is. Like, I hate, I hate yeah. that too. I hate but that too. there's just things in your life that are more valuable and you, you have to make sacrifice. You can't have everything. You can't have everything. You can't have everything at the end of the day. And now a lot of the narratives that sort of men will have is that, hey, women um, are only looking at this top small percentage of men. And when they say things that they're attracted to, certain traits – Yes, it's true that they might be attracted to things like a man who's emotionally intelligent, fashionable, able to cry, and you know, is isn't bound by toxic masculinity, which is first of all, that's a total like very simplistic view of what it's like to be a man, which is again another frustration, all right. Women hate it when we talk about what it's like to be a woman and you know how women should act. Yet now every woman has an opinion. This is what men should do. Go to therapy, learn how to cry, do this. This is exactly what it's like being a man. And it's like, 
Stopping hypocrites. Okay, how about listen to a man talking about what it's like being a man and don't tell me because you read a few Instagram stories what toxic masculinity is and, you know, there's this sort of narrative that when men hang out, it's all just like beer and rape jokes and the inability to cry. Like that's genuinely what a lot of people think men are like. Mm. Sure, that stereotype doesn't fall from the sky, but it's like me saying, oh, all women are just like... Like, that's the equivalent of it. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, yeah, some fucking 14-year-old girls are like that. But that's just such a dumb way of, like, interpreting something as complex as male behavior. And I was talking to my friends about this today. What I think the fem- that uh, sort of pro- progressive, I don't want to say that, the feminist, that's such a, like, <laughs> going to be clipped out of context. But, okay, sort of progressive cultural wisdom gets wrong is that it says, okay, Male attitudes towards women are the social construction. So when a man looks at a woman and objective, you know, oh, she's hot, I want to fuck her, or uh, has those sexual impulses and urges and sometimes acts on it, sometimes acts on it in a way that makes a girl feel uh, controlled or, you know, uncomfortable or uh, coerced, that is the social construction. And if we can just sort of take apart these cultural attitudes we can then uh, uh, ameliorate all the negative uh, male behaviours that are associated with that. And the natural state of any human being is simply to be just this loving, caring person and it's actually the whatever you want to call it, the patriarchy or the toxic masculinity that actually changes men from that state into these sort of animals. It's the complete other way around. The natural state of a man, and any man who is denying this has not truly explored themselves in their shadow or whatever. Well, let's be honest, they're not being honest. They're not being honest. The natural state for any man is to basically be a predator, okay? And that's uncomfortable to talk about, but it's true. It's very true. You socialize a man outside of society for, for 18 to 24 years with no other human contact. You give him food, you give him every other sort of physical need, you bring him into society, he is going to want to rape every fucking woman, okay? Mm. Now, I that's a very, I understand how that's a very confronting thing to hear and say, but that is the natural state, okay? Anything that we do that tells us not to act on that, that's the social construction. Mm. 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 That is culture and mm. that is what has now been totally misrepresented and misunderstood by, you know, well-meaning, don't get me wrong, very well-meaning women, but women who don't know what it's actually like to be a man and to actually live with this constant, like, fucker, 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 fucker. Okay, again, this is not by any means an excuse of any man who's acted unscrupulously in this regard, but we have to be honest about the origins of a lot of these problems. Mm. Okay, and so this kind of code that existed previously was like, all right, we have to sort of, you know, I guess Western chivalry, if you will, which was like, all right, we sort of act gen- women of the gentler sex and we protect them. And as a result, you know, they then give us their affection and their care and maternal instincts and care for our children sure and then we took away the the fact that women had to live up to those traditional gender roles but what you also took away was the incentive for men to be those protectors and those providers and those carers okay now most men would definitely no not even most men every like 99 percent of men would say oh but that doesn't mean you just automatically act like assholes or whatever but then there's all these other factors at play okay you know, sexual selection. 
sexual selection in a casualized dating market prioritizes things like the ex- excitement, physical attraction. Those two in particular, first of all, it doesn't prioritize things like sort of consistency, generosity, kindness. That's not attractive in a one-night stand or in a just for someone in their early 20s who wants to be excited and titillated. And again, it's not my opinion, not my opinion, all right? There's, there's that is obvious as well. studies that have backed this up. And so there's just this sort of transactional element to the way men and women interact in a society that has completely been lopsided and it's been completely forgotten. I don't know exactly what the solution is, but I agree with, uh, I think her name is Mary Harrington. I can't remember for the life of me. She's fantastic, whoever she is. But um, the next step of culture can no longer be liberation and like sort of freedom from these uh, supposedly archaic and restrictive norms. No, we have to go back to some new norms and some new restrictions that a part of the sort of totality of tra- not just traditional wisdom, but just wisdom taking into account the current environment, technological and, you know, sexual, and, and understand that there are certain behaviours that may be uncomfortable in the short term and possibly feel restrictive. But for the health of society and for the health of a relationship in the long term, they are of benefit. And, you know, when you have, like, all these 15 to 25-year-olds wanting to hook up or a lot wanting to hook up, getting drunk every weekend, ending up in a room together, they're half inebriated, okay, you run that experiment millions of times every single week with all the variables at play there, you know, the level of alcohol, the level of uh, social awareness that they may have, Yes, and upbringing and culture plays a part in that as well. Okay, you're, you're kidding yourself if you're, if you're going to assume like every interaction of those can always be perfectly amicable and everyone can have a comfortable good time. Now, I know, again, very, very uncomfortable topic to talk about, but we ha- like we have to. Mm. We can't not explore certain areas of this because they're uncomfortable for some people. Mm. Now- Where I probably disagree with some of the people who were quite vocal about this is I don't think just sort of taking a step a couple of decades back is the way to go. I think there has to be a completely new consciousness, especially for men, because like, okay, a man needs a purpose. A man needs a purpose. That is what is going to be his driving force throughout life, okay? And you look at the rates of male suicide. What are the biggest killers of men? Uselessness. Well, relationship breakdown and um, job loss. Well, financial pressure is usually incurred by job loss or like a combination of relationship breakdown and job loss. Yep. Okay. So what's happening there? Their purpose is being taken away. A big reason men get up in the morning and do jobs that most people fucking hate. No one wants to be a fucking garbage cleaner and do like very shitty physical jobs. Okay. Why do you do it? You have a purpose. You feel useful. You're going to provide for a family. Similarly, their family, okay, their wife, they want to protect them and provide for them. And, and that's a calling that's actually, I think, quite natural to it. Now, that's one where I'm like, okay, I don't know how much of that is culture and how much of that has been socialized into us. But I said that is just my opinion, but I too tend to think it's more within us. But when those two things are taken away, a man is, feels is rendered useless. He's got nothing to live for. Whereas the statistics show with women, when women lose their jobs, it's not as big of a blow to their self-esteem. A lot of them will then go into volunteer work 
and uh, help out in the community. And it's pretty rare that a woman loses her family. It's usually the man who loses touch with the family. Mm. Uh, I haven't actually seen the statistics to the, to, or, or like studies that show what happens to women when they lose touch with their family in the rare cases that a man gains custody. Uh, but I'd be interested to see that. I don't know what it is. I'll tell you what, I bet you when a woman f- commits suicide, it's got something to do with a lack of connection. Wouldn't be surprised. A, a big thing that, and, you know, people in the, I guess, manosphere, whatever you want to call it, use it as an own to feminists. is like, hey, the biggest use of uh, antidepressants is among single women in their early 40s. And, you know, I don't think it takes a genius to figure out why. why that may be the case. But uh, I think, man, and I'm going to do a video about this, which probably would have come out by now, but, like, men need to find a new new purposes. We've sort of, a lot of us sort of navigate our life and plan our life to have a really great career, fulfilling career, not just for us. That's the big difference. We're not... Most of us aren't doing a career for us. Even this is a career I love. For a long time, I was like, I want to do this because I want to be able to be a good, you know, prospect for a husband one day and and be, yeah, okay, part of it is for me too. But uh, there's other factors at play. And another big thing men live for is to like, yeah, find a a partner that they can feel useful towards and, and care for, even though now there's less care needed. I think we need new purposes. I think as a class, men need to start thinking about different ways to conduct themselves because these two primary purposes, i.e. the major a major relationship and a uh, fulfilling career that provides status and meaning and purpose, we're moving into a time where these are both very insecure. And yes, there are just systemic issues at play where you can do everything right. You can be a great worker at whatever job you do you can be a great husband okay ai might come into it and you just lose your job even if you worked really hard and diligently for a long time now i know like we always profess on this podcast hey you should be trying to solidify yourself against that and constantly be learning but for a lot of guys that okay that's just not feasible and not everyone can be this sort of self-help king that's constantly trying to better themselves a lot of people just want to work in the way that say i'm assuming men did in the sort of 50s 60s and 70s you got a you, you you got a job when you were 18 to 22 and that was your job for life it had great benefits you could buy a house and you retired at 65 that's not possible anymore it's so insecure the workforce moving forward okay the ai can i just add because i automation. think that this this is actually something that i noticed with maths you hear it all the time. Uh-huh. Every woman says the same thing and it's because they're living in that past paradigm. They're sold something that no longer exists, what you're talking about, which is they say, I'm 28. I should have a house and be married by now. That's yeah. a constant thing that they're complaining about. Well, and it's because back in the day, you could do that. That is really the plaything of- the top 10% of society, 90% of society can't afford that shit. And, you know, like with all of these extra dynamics happening into it, it is actually quite rare that someone settles down and marries at 28 okay. now. In Sydney, yes. In Sydney, yes. But I think we're in an in, rural in Australia, a cultural yeah. bubble. Yeah, I yeah, think. yeah. No, even if you go out, you know, to middle and lower socioeconomic areas in capital cities, there's a lot of people still 
buying much cheaper houses and and you know settling down really young. But I I wonder when people have that complaint like, hey, uh, I'm twenty twenty eight nowadays would be quite young to say that, but definitely by sort of early and mid thirties, hey, you know I should have had a house by now and been married and have a kid or something. It's like, all right, how much that if that is you being having been picky, you know, how much that is you not being willing to settle or not opting for someone who didn't necessarily immediately fulfill your desire to feel excited and, you know, uh, titillated. But that's a fair point. Yes, economically, that's also becoming far more, that's becoming a lot more difficult. Um, but I still think men need to start thinking about that, like a third purpose that isn't job and isn't woman because those two things are very insecure because it, you can look again i'm not trying to sort of this is not an attack on women as a class or feminism or anything like that but there are just certain men who, even if they do everything right are going to struggle in this modern dating climate they might be able to have a one-night stand now and again they might they might be able to get a relationship but will it really be a fulfilling one i don't know but that's why i think a way to sort of mollify against um you know, negative mental health consequences that could come with your job being lost or your relationship being lost through no fault of your own or not through a major fault of your own. I think it's very selfish and well, self-centered when people are constantly painting narratives where a relationship breakdown is purely because of the other person. Like, well, that other person, I figured out they were crazy. I figured out they were this. And it was, it's like, all right, I've never, it's very rare to hear someone say, yeah, it was probably my fault. I never hear that. But anyway, that's that's another thing. But because we're very vulnerable in that state of, you know, deep intimacy and romance. But I think men should be, young men should be asking the question, if I lose my career, if I lose a potential life partner, what is something that is still going to get me out of bed in the morning? It's a good way to look at life. I think that the, the, they've got to start asking that question. And actually, as a result, it's probably going to be good for your dating prospects anyway to have a Absolutely. passion. That's going to be really good. And but, your job. But that's that shouldn't be the reason you're doing it. It should be one for your just your mental health. Because, again, the statistics are showing this is why men are killing themselves. Okay, find a purpose other than relationship and job. Find a purpose that – now, that's hard because, you know – a job in a relationship is going to take up a hell of a lot of your time. But if you're in your early 20s, late teens, whatever, you know, even mid to you look, any age really, even if it's, I think, a good thing to do is art. You know, you could be on you could be on welfare if you had, look, through no fault of your own, your industry could be completely outsourced. You, you know, AI could completely take over your industry, automation, blah, 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 whatever, another fucking pandemic. No, you've done nothing wrong. What can you still do? That will get you out of bed in the morning. Create art. Hmm. That's a beautiful thing that I think hmm. is, first of all, it's fulfilling a huge human need and it's also going to have positive short-term impacts hmm. for your mental health and, and just your general well-being. Hmm. But you're then expressing something that should be expressed, which is like male stories because a lot of men just don't talk. And when they do, men tend to, t to talk about these issues in a way that would resonate with them, which is like, well, here are the statistics and here are the graphs and here are the figures. Whereas what is probably more powerful 
uh, is, hey, this is my story and this is how it affected me. This is this is sort of my journey, which I know a lot of men are going to roll their eyes and be like, oh, for fuck, fuck off, this is an Oprah cunt. But no, as a class, that's what I think we should be trying to do and trying to learn how to do more effectively. Mm. Um, so... Uh, I uh, I think that's a question a lot of young guys have to again not just young I mean, any guy has to start asking themselves what is that sort of third point of purpose I can I can you know give to myself uh, and not a lot of people have that I mean okay so we're both artists for me art to begin with was a sort of a hobby it was something I loved. It then just became my career. Now, if I were to lose my career, I don't know, get banned on every social platform and another pandemic hits, I can't perform anyway, which lets me out of It's not even that far out of the realm of possibility, those two factors colliding. But uh, I would still be able to write. I would still be able to uh, think. It's not artistic necessarily, but that's something I value and that's something I want to do for the rest of my life now is just continually amass knowledge. And I uh, would still be able to create art even if it's not necessarily being seen by as wide an audience. I always did it. There's always still a big part of me that does it for the love of the craft. And I also do other artistic, I have other artistic endeavours that aren't, you know, necessarily related to comedy. But I can't stress that enough. I think that I don't know what the overall solution is for this very chaotic, unpredictable dating world that we live in. And I I am sort of digressing to a certain degree by talking about the problems of the dating market and now saying, hey, this is what men should be doing. But uh, I think that may actually help alleviate some of the stress caused by the current dating and, and work climate. It won't necessarily solve it, but it will solve some of the stress associated with it because, hey, you're having absolutely no luck with your career. You're having absolutely no luck with women, but, hey, at least I've got this other third third string to my bow in my life purpose. I would always be, and I'm always advocating this on the self-help channel, how can I add value? Because you don't necessarily have to be adding value in terms of a monetary way. And if you do add value, money will naturally follow that anyway. As you were just saying before, everything else naturally falls into line if you are contributing in some way. And there's always something that you can be doing. Something that this is something that because there is a lot of wisdom. If you listen to those crime podcasts, mm. you'll hear the criminals, and it's the same with Spanion, because they have so much time to sit there and reflect on what they did, which is essentially, I suppose, the basic design of prison. They actually are extremely insightful people. And this is why there is that real trope of prisoners going out and then volunteering for wires or the dog pound or something. Yeah. You know? It's because they realize that if you are contributing in some way, you're valuable. That's what a man needs at his core. If you're adding value, by definition, you are valuable. Absolutely. And those are, the, are some great other examples. I think maybe the artistic pursuit is great for men like us who are maybe more creative and uh, <laughs> sensitive and less physically <laughs> capable of things. But uh, I think, yeah, volunteer work, uh, community work, uh, 
yeah, pet I think is is good, but also I think if if you can, you just need that idea that you're needed. Yes. that's it. That's what yes. men need. You want to feel useful and useful. You want to be admired, respected. But the I think the the sort of ag, the ag, average idea of respect between the genders is is different. I think. For women, it's a lot about it is like being, yes, feeling connection and feeling heard and understood and that's their sort of respect. Whereas for men, it's I want to feel, it's it sort of ties into usefulness and, and being needed. I'm res- Because then that's sort of synonymous with I'm respected for something that I can provide. Hmm. And, you know, for a big reason that I was questioning a lot of, I suppose, monogamous norms about relationships in three years ago was... You know, I just looked at the way uh, marriage was presented in media and in the way a lot of men spoke about it, and it looked horrible. It didn't look like any man was ever respected. It looked like he was just a little pet that was constantly being nagged, constantly mm. being told he's a piece of crap, mm. having to beg for sex, all this mm. kind of just mm. like it looks like the most sort of like low respect situation you could possibly be in. I suppose that so much uh, pop culture that plays on men's insecurities relates to that trope and Breaking Bad is the perfect example. Fight Club, all the American Psycho, all these sort of film, you know, film noir, male experience type works of art um, play on that. But then again, that's a perfect example. The people who created those fantastic pieces of art had a huge impact on on everyone, not just men, but those. But some of those are specifically, definitely, have had more significance on men. And I can't, I can't stress uh, the importance for of having that extra area of purpose in your life. No, the other thing that's really interesting about art is. The, the the depth that you have to go into yourself. As I've said numerous times on this podcast, I don't because because I've just been doing it for so long, I'm not even interested if art is good or not anymore. I'm not interested in it. When I'm watching stand up, when I'm watching a musician, every time I'm just like, that's where their head's at. And that's what they're deeply thinking about. And that fascinates me. Because it's truly amazing. Every time you ever see amateur musicians, ones that don't have a label behind them, which is inevitably what happens. You just get big enough and then it becomes a collaboration of ideas. But when you're in those early stages, and that's what's really charming about YouTube, when you see all these bands, you're just like, I know exactly what that person thinks as a result of their art. Their art really is a reflection of their psychology. Yeah. And so, that's what's really- there's another added feature, I suppose, is you can get value out of art, but also it's sort of a you're being a psychologist to yourself. It's the stuff that you're deeply if you're doing art correctly, and I think it just kind of naturally happens after you're doing art because you just you realize like it's an internal pursuit, so you have to just keep driving deeper into yourself. You start figuring yourself out more. It's really interesting. It's actually the same thing that happened with the stand-up show, actually. There's, at the end of it, I realized why 
it, it really hit me why I was actually very interested in Rome as a kid. And at the end of it, it's because it sort of sits in this halfway temporal sphere of being fact and myth because it happened so long ago. And that's where the subconscious loves to dance. That's the dreamscape. So, what actually happens with Rome is you are being told all these incredible stories. This is the thing that I never really understood as a kid when everyone else was just like, that's boring and shit like that. And I was like, no, this isn't. This is the greatest story ever told. And it is. It's because it's a story. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. because it's uh, far enough out of our conscious memory, collective conscious memory, mm. that there are mystical elements to it. There's mystical elements to it. It's fascinating, but it happened. It was real. But it happened. We don't know exactly exactly what happened. We know enough about exactly what happened to then be interpretive and, and creative about it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, Rome it's, and it's, Greece it's, in particular. It's Rome and Greece in particular because they – but the other thing is because their society was close enough to ours – it puts you in that, like, you, it's it's inherently much more human in a way. It's inherently much more human, ancient Rome and ancient Greece, I think, because you can put yourself in that world, but at the same time, it's kind of hitting you on a deeper level than your actual reality in a way, because it's kind of like your world plus togas and, like, you know, epic clashes of armies and Medusa and all these kind of things that actually did exist in that world. So, it is- it, and, and again, this is like more Freudian stuff, but that's more how the brain or like how the dreamscape is where there's just those mythical elements to it. So, when you are learning about it, you, you're understanding humanity actually. It, it, it teaches you things about humanity that- necessarily you won't learn or like it drills these lessons into your mind a lot deeper than previous time like then then uh then then today would because it's in that realm anyway the point is because i was sitting there and grappling over it for a year i had all of these realizations about me as a person and how that shaped me and that's the really interesting aspect of art is if you are sitting there and the meditative process of it, I suppose, you start getting at the core of who you are. Things awaken within you that you otherwise would have never analysed or thought about because you just don't have the time. So, if you make the time with the art, I think it actually gives you aspects of yourself that are either just running as unconscious programming or things that you had long forgotten about that you're like, that's why I liked that. And then you can add that to yourself now. Mm. Anyway, that, that's, yeah, that's, and it's definitely something that you see in Neil as well. It's like what I was talking about with that man thing. Obviously, you've been thinking about man a lot. And it's just like, look, skits is your thing. Uh, it, it is what made you famous. It's because you've got a particular skill in shortening, in as economical point as possible, a way of thinking. And that is obviously very valued by people. And it's obviously because of your interest in art that you were able to get to that level. And that's all well and good. So, you're naturally, any skit that you do is going to be 
of that quality, right? And so, every now and then, it's actually, look, I know that I never shut up about Hamish and Andy, but it's the same thing. A bad episode of Hamish and Andy is still way better than all of those other like male radio duos because they were the best at what they did, right? So, it's just, it's a cut above. And then every now and then they do something that outdoes themselves. In that skit realm, the one that overdid all the rest of it was exactly what you're talking about on this podcast. And now it makes a lot of sense why that one was just a cut above all the other skits is because you've been deeply thinking about this for a long time. And so, when you did that evolution of- I can't even remember what it was called. Evolution of man thoughts or whatever. Evolution of uh, basic man. Evolution of basic man. You should check it out Thank because you. it was like what I was saying with Neil. When you're watching that, it's beyond funny. It's too accurate. That's the whole fucking thing that like you are sitting- And I remember showing like some of my staff that I'm working with- and they, they did really have a similar reaction to me. It's just you kind of sit there and you're just like, fuck. Fuck, he's nailed it. You know, like it's it's because, Thanks, because he drilled really, really deep into something that he's been thinking about a lot. And that's where real art is made, I suppose. You know, that one. Yeah. So, it's just like and, and that's it is a real it's a constant pursuit in art and- like with Neil's, it, it doesn't come by very often. It can't come by very often because you have to go to a very deep, long meditative state. You have to think about it for a long time. And that's what's like very sand painting in and I'm fortunate about your specific art, I suppose, is that I personally appreciate it as a comedian, right? I understand that comedy- is best when it's extremely economical and efficient, right? So, when I look at your your skit, I'm just like, that's sick that you're able to do that in two minutes because you've just cut it down to the rawest that you possibly can. I appreciate what's happening there, that economy. I think to everybody else, they're kind of just sitting there and it'd be the same with me, this thing of like, it's internet-y. You know, and so naturally it's kind of just dismissed because it's the internet and it's not, you know, the, the budget of a fucking Christopher Nolan film or some shit, right? So it's kind of just pushed away. But, and it's not painting, I suppose, that has some, I don't know, whatever, right? Like it's just like little two minute internet clips. But it's amazing that in that realm, that that has become your art, you've been focusing on that for so long with the combination of thinking about things so much. It's really strange that- after a while, you, you you push it to another level, you know? Like, it doesn't matter what art you're focusing on. At some point, you just- It naturally evolves to another thing. Another- uh, uh, What I'm saying there. It evolves to another level. So, that was anyway. It was very interesting seeing Man, you using that. Like, something that you've been doing since you were 18. And now that you're older, like, you've had so much familiarity in that format- but you've got the wisdom, I suppose, of just being older and those two things naturally converging. So, anyway, I'm saying that you should look that up to see, like, what's happening in someone's head when they're, like, on their path and they're using art sort of to describe what's on their path. It's the cave painting stuff. It's just like, this is how I see the world. It was bison and men throwing spears at the bison. You know, that was- Man, that well, first of all, thank you. That means a lot. That was great. Uh, well, it definitely deserves compliments. I'll say that because it's again, it's it's 
like deceptively, I think that a lot of people, probably not actually, because I think that a lot of people will just watch that and just be like, fuck, that is accurate. But deceptively, I think a lot of people will just dismiss that because it's kind of just like, it's a skit. Just for whatever reason, skit is lower than, you know, uh, mosaic or whatever, right? But there's a lot of fucking thought that went into that, you know? And and the, and the true economy of that is its own form of art. But sorry, Thank continue. You. But what's something you said about that cave painting is, is uh, rings true. Hey, this is the way I see the world. And I think more men need to – it's, it's going to be uh, – hmm. we live in a, a time now where just your, you know, your labor, if you will, or your usefulness is, is slowly being diminished and it's a matter of time before robots will essentially do everything. But as minuscule as your footprint may be, according to you, if you can articulate the way you see the world in an impactful and significant way and maybe even share that on the internet, that's valuable. That is so valuable. You've, you've given a piece of yourself to the world. That will exist long after you're gone. And the power and significance of that can never be overstated. No, because it is quite incredible In fact, two every now and then shows me these kinds of things. But like, okay, look, I'm going to have to use it as always. But obviously, because I've just been autistically down the rabbit hole of the Byzantine Empire, there is this poem of this guy that was around the sacking in 1204 of Constantinople and it's just th- – that's the way that it's described. It's a lament. It's kind of halfway between a poem and just like his thoughts about it. It is widely regarded as one of the saddest pieces of literature ever made. And because you always just thought that. What is it like in medieval Europe being in a city that is getting sacked by barbarians or whoever it is, crusaders, Arabs, whatever – your home being completely uprooted, looking back at it, and the whole fucking city's on fire. Like, what was that like? And that man gives you an insight into it. And the thing is, you read that and you will cry. That's a powerful thing. That happened, what, 800 years ago? More than 800 years ago? And his- feelings and interpretation of what happened. It's its like, it's truer than the factual accuracy of it, right? Like the, the you, you can say anything you want about the sacking of Constantinople, that they got in this way, they took this artwork and all this kind of stuff. But like really at the end of the day, it was a human experience and that man's human experience has echoed throughout the ages. It's a historically significant piece of art that I think like the- Conservation Foundation of Europe or whatever it was just like just like this is particularly important, you know? That's that's what true art can do. Yes. Yes. And the more people <laughs> creating and, and from a sort of a perspective that ironically now my narrative is that well, you know, men always have an opinion and don't stop talking, but no, okay. I, I, I think we need to tell our stories. Not enough of them. No. 
and things have shifted dramatically just in the space of 10 years. For most men in their 20s, there's no power. You know, what power do they have? You, you know what I think is... Depressed. Everyone's nihilistic. Everyone's nihilistic. And also this thing that you were saying of like, yeah, men don't cry. I think it's just they cry about different things to women. And that's the whole thing. Like, you, you tap into those separate emotions. It's what you're saying, right? Like, it's like the male experience is inherently different. And if you uh, if you cede that realm to others, then it gets interpreted in that way. So, Neil is kind of right. Everybody should be practicing some form of art in some way. Because it is just a real expression of your experience and good art allows other people to relate to it. Yeah. Like that thing, it was just like, dude, that fucking skit is how your brain evolved. And like, obviously, it's guesswork from 40s and 50s, but you can see, this is the whole thing that's really interesting about it. You can see your brain going down that route because everything that you had before that was like, yeah, that was that. Just seems accurate. Thank you, man. Thank you. Uh, Well, powerful words. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. And, uh, you know, I'm sure some people in the comments can bring that skid back down to earth. Come back around (laughs) to the tall poppy syndrome that we were talking about at the start of this podcast, which was this podcast that we were talking about that. I think it was. But uh, I hope you enjoyed my uh, long ramble there in the middle. And... uh, Yep, as always, shows uh, Newcastle, Melbourne, and Sydney, neildown.com, um, neilcohacker.com slash podcast. If you want to ask a question, a shout-out, or a topic, all the money goes to charity, go to friendlygeordies.com. Is that your website? Mm-hmm. Yep. See where he's touring. He's pretty much all over Australia, right, doing all the festivals. At some that. point, yes. Yeah, and you go, you, go to, you go all over the place. You go to, like, Hervey Bay and, you know. Yeah, I do. Town. I do. And I like those shows as well. I really like those shows. So I come on would, down to them. man. I always get messages, well, we'll come to this town. And then I always go to those towns and like 10 50 people. 50 people walk up. Mm. Not, no, not even 50. 10. Uh, Fuck. Okay. That's brutal. Okay, maybe not 10, but uh, what was that? I did Bendigo a few years ago. And um, what was it? In the sort of, sort of like 27 people came. like. Good enough for Bendigo a is brutal. Yeah. Bendigo is particularly brutal. Bendigo awkward, does man. not like art. They really don't. Well, they're oh, no, the no, ones no. who should they be like listening Carl. to this podcast. There you go. Uh, Bendigo, create art. Tell mm. us what it's like. Mm. Paint the picture of Bendigo and the um, experience, the human experience that comes with that. All right. Thank you guys very much for listening. Um, we'll see you next time. Thank you.